0: Today's guest is author, comedian, actress, producer, and TV host Chelsea Handler. I just finished reading her new book, Life Will Be the Death of Me, which I loved. This is the third time Chelsea has been on the podcast because when I started reading her book, I missed her. So here she is again. I hope you enjoy the episode. Gentlemen, you are listening to Unqualified with your host, Anna Ferris. So I started your book, Life Will Be the Death of Me, and I was around chapter three and I did something that I thought was being lazy. I bought it on audiobook and I felt like it was cheating a little bit because I always have a little bit of hesitancy having like the tonal idea of an author. I don't cry a lot. <sighs> but fuck, man. (laughs) And you're speaking about your, I know that you hate the word journey. I don't like it either, but shit, you can tell I'm kind of at a loss for words. So, all right, I'll back this up before I compliment whatever emotional experience you brought out in me, which I did not expect. To me, it was so fucking raw and beautiful and honest. And to hear your voice crack a little bit listening to it was incredibly moving. Having read my own book out loud, I was like shocked that I was in tears listening to you talk about your experiences in such an honest way. Well, I have to say I've written six books and recording the audio version of a book is not my
1: idea of a good time. I don't like to be doing voiceover. I don't like being stuck in a little glass booth. I haven't done a lot of it in my career. So, the most I have had to do it is for when I have to audio record a book. And I grew to hate that experience so much with my first two books because, you know, you have to speak phonetically perfectly and slowly, which I'm incapable of doing. So, it was really annoying. And then, like, finally, I remember one book I said, please hire a sound alike. And that was a disaster. And I remember people coming up to me for years afterward being like, how could you let someone else read your book? Like, it's all about your personality. So, this was my first. experience where I went to record it and I banged it out, I think in one or maybe two days. But I, you know, allotted for like eight days because I couldn't bear to be in there for more than two hours. But I was so involved in the emotion of the book at the time it was coming out. It was like all this kind of gel of creative vomiting that just kind of happened. And it was the perfect mood for me to be in because I did connect and I did lose it while I was recording. And I remember walking out of that recording booth and they're like, okay, do you want to, you know, do that again? I was like, no, fuck it. Let people hear this. This is what oh people want real truth. Like I've always had a great strong relationship with the truth, especially when it concerned others. Like let me tell you the truth about yourself. You know, like I was like, I would get paid to give my opinion, you know, unsolicited times a hundred, but to be honest with yourself is a different ball game. Like to actually really take a look at yourself and have self-awareness and then, also, share it. It is kind of like the perfect road to recovering from grief or trauma or delayed grief, or however you want to
0: frame it. You started talking about how tired you were of people being nervous about you because you describe yourself, which I believe you are as a highly sensitive, very intuitive, ferociously loyal person. I know that last part because of our mutual friendship with Alice and Jenny, and I feel like the friendship that I have with you, even I feel like. If need be, I would call Chelsea. She is like the fucking bulldog. But (laughs) I, I, so it was really embarrassing to me that I thought, why would I put you on the spot with something that you clearly have been feeling? I was thinking, this is the third time Chelsea's been on the show. I've been over to her house. How do I express those ideas? I felt humbled. And then, and then how personal, I'm going to start crying right now. Uh, how personal your experience with your brother and your mom and how you honor your sister. Has this been like the deepest dive? Because I've read your other work and it's funny and relatable and touching and flippant at times, but this felt different. I think there's a time in all of our lives where you get
1: real. For me, it was the election. Like when that election happened, I was like, this can't fucking be seriously happening. I couldn't believe that like, We had a population of people that thought that that was a good candidate for president. And I took it badly, like very badly. And I was angry and I had a level of outrage that was at like, you know, it became unmanageable. And I thought it was all about Donald Trump. So I was like, I wanted to go around the country and talk to colleges and voters and conservatives and get a better understanding so that, the term elitist wouldn't really pack any punch because it wouldn't have been true. You know, I came to find out it is true. I am an elitist. That's exactly what I've always tried to be. You know, like I came from New Jersey and I wanted to go live a nice life in California and have a big house. So I did that. But it feels different because it's authentic. And the only credibility I have to have in my career is to be authentic with what's going on with me at the time. So for me to have like this kind of left turn, it's pretty typical and pretty cliche. But for some reason, it was very surprising because a lot of people saw me only in one way. So it was a nice way to invite people in to say like, No, no, no. We're all multifaceted. We're all multidimensional. Just because I'm this loudmouth who doesn't take any shit from anybody on this TV show doesn't mean that I haven't had my heart broken or I haven't had heartache or trauma or I'm not devastated. You know, it's all different, but we all have experiences with it. Like I was just too self absorbed. I spent too much time thinking about myself and what am I going to do? And when I stopped and really took a look and took inventory after Trump was elected, I realized that I had been a big contributor to the problem. what do you mean? Because I was looking at, you know, I was looking at my own privilege. I was looking at how easy my life had been. You know, I came from New Jersey. My dad was a used car dealer. We weren't hungry, you know, we could pay our bills most of the time. We didn't have real struggle. My brother died. That was my big traumatic event. And that kind of imprints your entire life. And you don't take that seriously until you're a certain age. I sure as shit didn't. I was like, no, my brother dying is like, I'm over it. Don't worry, I'm past that. Guess what? I wasn't past it. And so Donald Trump being elected was just kind of the trigger for my anger because it represented the other time in my life where things became unhinged and became unmanageable. And that was when, you know, my brother looked at me and said, I'll never leave you with these people talking about my parents and then went on a hiking trip to the Grand Tetons and slipped and fell off a cliff. So as a child, as a nine-year-old girl, even though intellectually it was explained that it was an accident, it was like, why did he just lie to me? He said he was going to be careful. And then he went and died like, oh, he may as well have left me for another nine-year-old girl and another new family and been like, these people are cooler. That was the imprint that was made. And then, you know, (laughs) the aftermath about what a family goes through after death and what the grieving process is, because everybody's just trying to like stay above the water. Nobody can even try and look for other swimmers. You're just like, whoa, you know, just when you think you're getting through a moment, it hits you again. And it's just kind of this like plane crash That never ends. You know, the day that death happens isn't the worst. It's the next day. It's the morning when birds are chirping and people are going about their lives and you can't fucking believe that somebody you love died and nobody knows.
0: I love it how you write about how bad news should happen in the daylight because when the morning comes... It's just too much. And you write about that so eloquently. Really, I'm getting kind of choked up. My sister loved it too, because it was a whole reckoning of our time. You know, like
1: my brothers and sisters all experienced my brother dying, but we all obviously had different experiences. And it's funny how your memory plays tricks on you. You know, you don't remember traumatic events the same way. Like my sister was like, oh, I was with you the entire time when we learned that Chet died and then in the drive back home to New Jersey. And I was like, no, you weren't. I was with Simone. And she's like, Chelsea, I was with you the entire time we were never separated, but I have no recollection of her. And I think that's fairly common. So it kind of opened a dialogue with my brothers and sisters about how we all dealt with him dying because listen, going to therapy is a huge luxury that most people can't afford. So in the spirit of oversharing, which I'm prone to do, I thought, why not overshare this? Because if I'm experiencing this, how many other people won't have access to
0: this healing information? Truly though, your audio recording... That's the only way I would want our listeners to check this out. It's remarkable.
2: Oh,
1: well, thank you very much for the compliment. It's much appreciated.
0: Did you have a best, like a kindred spirit best friend from like third to sixth grade or somewhere in there?
1: I did. I had a lot of different friends. I mean, I bounced around a lot. I still do. Like I always bounce from
0: group to group to group. I would latch on in a very obsessive way.
1: Like what? Give me an example. Like you wanted one best friend and you wanted to be with them all the time.
0: Well, not just that. It just felt like, oh, okay, this person, we connect with our imagination. We're playing like house or orphanage or boarding school when the other kids think it's lame. Like I covet this person. And so then when the inevitable betrayal happens, it's just Gut wrench.
1: Yeah, right,
0: right. Uh, No, I was more of a
1: leader. Like, I mean, I played both of those roles, but I was more of like, it was my way or the highway. And as soon as people didn't agree with me, I went around and found a group of people that did. Like, I was kind of like, you know, bullyish. I didn't get heard and seen at home. I had six brothers and sisters. So when I went to school, I was like, I wanted respect. I was like, let's go. Like, this is the plan.
0: You know, I wanted to be in charge of something. (laughs) Okay. Can I ask you some life questions? Yeah, please. We're going to start out easy. I think you're always up for a challenge. All right. What's your favorite ice cream flavor? Uh, Chocolate, something, anything chocolate-based. It feels like you're not passionate about ice cream. I'm not. Okay. I'm not
1: a big ice cream person. Your instincts are absolutely right.
0: Well, then are you a foodie is like a food passion of yours? I'm
1: not a foodie. Listen, I'm so healthy that like everything I do regarding food is so boring. Nobody wants to hear about it. (laughs) And I only eat well because I'm older now. I'm in my 40s. So I have to take care of myself. So I'm not a foodie, but I'm very healthy about what I eat.
0: Do you find safety in like the degree of control?
1: No, I'm not a control freak like that. I just like... To be healthy. I mean, I've grown up. Like, I understand what makes you feel good and what doesn't. So, like, yes, would I like to sit down and have a bag of Doritos? Absolutely, for breakfast. <laughs> More so than ice cream, for sure. That's my thing, but I don't do that anymore. Okay. What was your favorite toy as a child? My fake Barbie that my parents got me, my Barbie with a Y and a working vagina. What? I always got these imitation brand, like Cabbage Patch Kids. It was like a makeshift Cabbage Patch. Like, it was always the knockoff of the standard. I'm
0: confused with the working vagina. Yeah, she was a prostitute. Like, she had a hole? Yeah, you could put things in it. What? I found that out the hard way, so, and, (laughs)
1: yeah. Did you have kids? Yeah, I had kids, and I had Cabarichis. Remember those? Those
0: zipper jeans? I don't even think they had... I was in Washington State.
1: Yeah. I don't think they would have had it. That was like a New York, New Jersey thing, the Cavaricis, which were like these really, really ugly pants. They were like $100. And then there were guest jeans that yeah. came on the scene when I was like a teenager. Guest jeans and then traffic jeans. Remember those?
0: And parachute pants. Did you wear parachute yes, pants? I did. And I was the only one. It didn't go well.
1: Yeah. I once had an ax and a pair of parachute pants.
0: Oh, that's actually, that's a good choice of pants.
2: That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
0: Okay, what did you want to be growing up?
1: I wanted to be successful. I wanted to have my own house away from my family. All I wanted to do was go into a family that was organized and orderly because my parents were just... It was a shit show. So, like, you know, you'd come home and there was food always in places there shouldn't have been. And it was always messy. The house was never clean. There were used cars like strewn throughout the
0: front driveway. So, it wasn't a hot look at all. So, my mom, she instilled in me the idea simply of like, don't ever be supported by a man. My mom relied on my dad so much that it instilled
1: in me a desire to never be in a situation like she was because I felt like she was vulnerable. You know, when my dad got sick, he had a heart attack when he was in his early 50s and I was just a little girl, but I learned that our house wasn't even in my mom's name. It was in my dad's name. My dad didn't have a will set up. He had nothing prepared for her. So she would have had to like, you know, go fight for the rights to her own thing. If anything had happened. And I remember thinking during that time that I just wanted to never be in a situation like that. And I never wanted to rely on a man for anything because the two men I had relied on, my brother and my father, both basically disappointed me in such a huge way. So that combined with, you know, learning about my father and the way he was treating my mother, it just instilled a definite urge for independence. It's also the reason why I've never wanted to be married. I want to be independent, 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 independent. And then you're like, okay, everybody's got the message. You're independent. <laughs> like, shut the fuck up about it already.
0: So what was your parents' relationship like?
1: My dad was very chauvinistic. Like, my father was in charge, and he made the decisions, and he called the shots. And my mom was the softie who you went to for almond joys and
0: macaroni and cheese. And a wife will oftentimes be so much more gracious when the man is fucked up than a man ever would. I don't know if it's changing, but I think that that was the environment that we grew up in and that we would witness as young women growing up and absorb. Yeah. My
1: dad definitely treated her like, you know, she was a second-class citizen in many respects. And also that all becomes inured in us, you know, the way we treat Our family and the way I looked at my mother was colored by the way my father looked at her. So we sometimes don't realize the impression that we're having or making or we think our kids don't pick it up. It's like, of course they do. It's inside of them. It's like in your DNA. If you grow up in that environment, you're not going to be blind to it and non-feeling to it. But yeah, it's just even more of a reason to like conduct yourself the way that you want. It's like, well, don't treat people the way you don't want to be treated. And it sounds like a vague kind of trite thing to say, but it's so true. It's like, do you want something like that to happen to you? Then don't do it. Do you want something like that to happen to you? Then do that. That's nice. (laughs) Like, why can't it just be that fucking simple?
0: Yeah. So you wanted to be successful growing up. Like, that's the precursor to the kids that now answer fame.
1: Well, no, I wanted to be famous. I thought my opinion was so important to get out there. I was like, God, the world is going to need to hear what I have to say. All you need is a little misplaced confidence and you can almost achieve anything. And you have to be white. That helps in this country. So... I was able to put enough energy towards something to make it happen. And I think that's also a great example of what happens when you are like laser focused on something. You kind of always achieve it. All the balls kind of start to roll in the same direction. Okay.
0: I can't imagine being your first boss. So what was your first boss like? I got fired from so many jobs because I would just go off on people.
1: I once delivered pharmaceuticals in Livingston, New Jersey. I mean, I'm passionate about pharmaceuticals, and I know a lot about them. And I can prescribe things. I know what people need and what how mm-hmm. much they should take, what dosage they should take.
0: I mean, I'm not. You do a medical mention do- this in your book. I didn't know you how serious you were I'm about
1: serious. this. This is good. I'm not to a know. medical doctor, so you cannot legally take <laughs> any medical advice from me. And I have to say that every time I talk about pharmaceuticals, and that's the end. Oh, sorry. So I delivered pharmaceuticals. And I once backed the truck out of someone's driveway and into, I guess, a lamppost or something or, you know, maybe a tree. And I came back to the pharmacy and just I was 17 years old. And they're like, what happened? You know, the car's dented. I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. It wasn't me. And he's like, yeah, of course it was you. It wasn't dented this morning. (laughs) You're the only one who's driven it. And it's dented. And I was like, I'm not going to admit to that. I was like, that seems like, a, again, another liability. I was like, this is going to go south fast. So anyway, that was my first boss. So that didn't end well. We got into a screaming match. And then I think I moved to California shortly thereafter.
0: So wait, what's your interest with pharmaceuticals?
1: It's so nice to be able to help people. Like, okay, so doxycycline to me, I'm very passionate about doxycycline. Doxycycline has cleaned up skin issues. I used to get this little rosacea thing on my cheek. I couldn't get rid of it for years. Is it a animal? Antibiotic? It's an antibiotic. Like they give it to you when you go to Africa for malaria. They give it to you for acne. They give it to you for lots of things. If you have a bacterial infection, if you have a staph infection, that kind of thing, it can kind of save you in a lot of instances. But I'm passionate about that. Like my makeup artist she had a skin rash. I was like, you should take two doxycycline twice a day for 10 days. Talk to your doctor about it. And she did it and she's never had a skin rash again. So it's like, I know what I'm talking about. I
0: I believe you
1: like cannabis. I'm very passionate about cannabis because cannabis has been a great pivot from pharmaceuticals. Now cannabis affords the same kind of effects. A lot of things that pharmaceuticals provided, but are disgusting, you know, like creating the opioid industry, you know, so I don't want to give them any more of my money, nor should any other American. But cannabis offers taking the edge off, helping you sleep. For me, patience is a real issue when I'm talking to people I'm not interested in. If I have a, the right edible that's microdose and tells me exactly what kind of mood it's going to put me in, I can talk to almost anybody for like an hour at least. I can. And that's a patience I didn't have. So like- before I used to drink a lot, and now I don't because cannabis is kind of taken front and center because it's just more pleasant, you know what I mean? Yes, I remember everything I'm not bloated anymore, and I'm softer and easier. I'm not like jumping down people's throats because I no longer like have
0: that kind of anger. I love it when you what you wrote about ayahuasca, which is an experience I haven't had, would you do it again? I would i mean I'm not dying to do like I'm
1: kind of like you know I have had a lot of experiences with drugs and I'm not loving the hallucinogenic aspect of things at this time in my life. Like I'll take some microdose mushrooms once in a while just to give me a little pep in my step, but I don't really need ayahuasca. I'm open to doing it again. And the other thing is, I did that for a Netflix series, you know, this Chelsea Does series, and it's easy to do outrageous things when I'm on camera. Like, I did that for the purpose of being filmed so that people could see what the experience actually
0: looked like. I don't know that I'd be so tempted to do it if it weren't on camera. Do you know what I mean? I do, but I think that I would be the opposite. I would... Think, okay, there's a nice justification. Okay, I'm doing this like illicit drug and people might shift their opinion of me, but it's for the sake of this thing. I think that that element would make me more nervous. Well, I'm like impulsive and I don't really give a shit. You know what I mean? Like I just want to go
1: for it and I want to have an experience that makes other people feel like they've had the same experience. So I just try and be as like open as possible. The first night I did it, I didn't really feel it because my two friends I was with had crazy experiences and they got really emotional. So I was like spending my night tending to my friend. So I never really got high the first night. So the second night, the shaman, who also shat his pants twice, you should know that during my ceremony, they warned me to like, if you do ayahuasca, there's a chance you could, you know, shit your pants on camera and vomit. And I was like, I will not shit my pants. Like I'm a professional drug user. I'm not a beginner no one's shitting their pants. And guess who shot their pants? The shaman. Twice and didn't get up to go to the bathroom, just inside
0: his jeans and sat there.
1: I learned that when I watched the episode back because you can hear it. Oh. Yeah.
0: So that well, was. Well, he probably wore a diaper. Right. If he's the shaman, he came
1: prepared. Yeah. Maybe he did have a diaper on. Well, that wouldn't explain why there was shit in his shoes. Oh, God. But anyway, the second night was a very spiritual experience. You know, it was just this imagery of your childhood and my sister and she and I running along the beach at our summer house in Martha's Vineyard and she and I laughing in kayaks and pushing each other over. It was just imagery of you as a child and you're not in your life, you're outside of it and you're looking down at it. And all the characters are true and all the experiences are things that have happened. But stuff that's so in the back of your memory that you don't remember them. And you're like, holy shit, I have all these memories that are stuck there. You know, I was like, oh, I remember that dog. We used to have that dog. But did you go to darker memories? Nothing about it was dark at all. You know, and I think it depends. You know, if you struggle with depression, if you're on medication, I'm not on medication for depression and I don't struggle from that. So that's important to tell people because some people do have episodes and breaks during ayahuasca. I really feel passionately about drugs. It is like what you put in is what you get out. You have to have a good attitude. You have to be optimistic. You have to say to yourself repeatedly, I want to have a good experience right now. This is going to be meaningful. And, you know, eventually you don't have to say that to yourself anymore, but you always have to remain in a place of like, okay, I'm ready for whatever. It's going to be okay.
0: Yeah. I used to get really paranoid smoking weed. It made me feel kind of shitty about myself, but I have an open mind.
1: Yeah, no, yeah. I think when you overdo any of it, which I also have a tendency to do, it's not good. And the thing I like about the cannabis space right now is that there's an educative component that has been missing for so long. So it's great in understanding what you're taking and how much you're taking and to microdose instead of overdose. Yeah, I've spent the last three years learning a lot about cannabis, cannabinoids. There's a strain called THCV, which can work as an appetite suppressant. And so like men have never kind of produced this in mass quantities because men aren't thinking about, hey, wouldn't it be nice for us to be able to get stoned without being fucking pigs?
0: Yeah. So Chelsea, this is a broad question, but I really want you to be specific. Who has influenced your career the most?
1: Hmm. Well, there was an event that was meaningful. I went to do the Just for Laughs Montreal Comedy Festival some year. I don't remember what year. I was like 28 or 29 years old, and I was supposed to be like the hot ticket, but I bombed badly. And there were a lot of big people in the room that were gonna come and see me. And so I fucked up. And I was so nervous and I just screwed up. So then the next day, this old timer comedy booker, he's like, You know, it doesn't matter that you didn't do well tonight. He goes, You just have to go and do great the next time and make sure there's enough people in their room to give you a development deal. And I was like, no, I'm never going to ever redeem myself. He's like, I promise you that you can change the narrative on this in a week. If you go and just redeem yourself with a different group of people. Mm -hmm. And I did it like at Luna Park. And I think I got my first development deal with NBC right after, and I killed it because I was ready. I just got really nervous and I was green, you know, and that was a great lesson for me because we take failure so seriously and we get so down about ourselves. And it's like failure is always a doorway into something else. Like the sooner you embrace it, the sooner you're through it and into the next phase of your life, which is always going to be improvement upon the last. As soon as you're honest with it, it's like resisting the actual event is where you get caught up. Like if you're sitting there mourning something that's happened, you need to accept it and then find a solution to get to the next place that you're trying to go. It's really
0: wise. It's a really good lesson that failing is always an opportunity for your next success. It's humbling and humanizing to be fundamentally embarrassed. <laughs> yeah, totally. All right. So, what is the best or worst advice you've been given?
1: The best advice was somebody once said it doesn't matter how many people say no, all you need is one person to say yes. And the worst advice, I mean, people who say things like, you know, Just the stupid things, the platitudes in life, like you can never make up a first impression. First impressions mean nothing, okay? Now I'm older, I understand like first impressions are the worst impressions of anyone. The people that you don't like right away, you end up becoming close friends with. People you do like right away, you end up not liking immediately thereafter.
2: This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
1: So I feel like there's so much advice out there that's like so stupid. And when people just say things without having any thought behind them, I just usually choose to ignore that line of advice. So
0: Chelsea, if you have a negative impression of somebody that you first meet and you see them again a week later, can you pivot pretty quickly?
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, that's the greatest thing about going to therapy is that it gives you the tools to challenge your thinking, to go, oh, maybe I'm wrong about this. Maybe I'm not right about this. Why do I have such a strong opinion about something I know nothing about? I have huge opinions, really strong ones on parenting. (laughs) I'm like, I'm going to write a book called Hot Parenting (laughs) Tips and tell everybody what I fucking think of them. Hot Parenting Tips. And marital tips for those people who are silly enough to get married. Oh, I love it.
0: Yeah. A strong position with proper rationale or reasoning that's easily shiftable. That's a great quality in a person.
1: Well, it's also, it's like, if your opinions are set, then you're not interesting because then you're intransigent. Like if you already have set opinions and none of them are movable, then okay, forget it. So you're not learning and growing. So you may as well be gone. You know how sometimes you get gung ho, you meet someone, you're like, this person's great. This person's great. And you're like, Too soon. That happens a lot in life. Like you realize, oh, not every saying is true, or sometimes it's the opposite of what they're saying. And sometimes you meet somebody and you're like, oh, this person's kind of okay, or I judge them for some reason that's completely unfounded. You know, and then you see them a couple more times and you're
0: like, oh, this is a slow burn. This is one of those people that I'm going to like more than I thought I was going to like. I love that you can recognize that. But that also reminds me, though, if you have in hindsight, fonder memories of a specific career point that takes you by surprise now?
1: Yeah, I don't have that kind of like sentimentality about the past. First of all, right now, I'm very much about being in the moment and to not be worried about the past or the future, to just really try and be normal and present and grounded and not have anxiety because I think everybody's really at the end of their ropes with this thing and we're not even out of the woods yet. I know. Okay. What's your favorite
0: rainy day movie? Mm, I love rainy days.
1: I like Steel Magnolias a lot. That's a movie I can always watch, no matter how much time has gone by. Shelby? Yeah, Shelby. I love that moment when she's like, I just want to slap someone. I want to hit
0: someone. She's like, here, <gasps> hit
1: Weezer.
0: Chelsea, I think that you can only watch Steel Magnolias like once every four years. I don't know. I
1: mean, I've seen it a couple times recently. Well, that and Pretty Woman. Pretty Woman's always on at some time of the year. But Steel Magnolias is on a lot, I feel like. Especially in hotels, it's on a lot. Yeah. Okay. Do you have a favorite book or author? I just read a beautiful book called I'll Be Right There by King Suk Shin. She's a South Korean writer, and I would recommend that to anybody. So, yes, she's my new favorite writer.
0: I'll be right there. Okay. What is a trait you dislike in others? Cheap. People who are cheap. In what way? Like
1: financially. like Not if they don't have money, but people who have excess and don't give, I think is
0: really a gross quality, you know? Yeah. What is a trait you dislike in yourself? Uh,
1: my temper or my reactivity is a good way to describe it. That's my thing from therapy. I was like, how do I hear something and not respond immediately? <laughs> and how do I not react and respond? You know, the space between a reaction and a response. That was like the first thing I, I was like, I need you to teach me. And, you know, I did learn that it is important to not always insert yourself or to be a contrarian or to finish someone's sentence or to want your voice heard it's just kind of unnecessary most of the time when you think about it
0: your best friend is the actress mary mccormick right yeah you write a lot about her and i don't know her all that well but i adore what is it about your friendship that feels like you keep each other safe at least that's sort of the impression
1: well you know it's kind of like the marble jar i think have you ever heard that Uh uh-uh Renee Brown, she talks about, you know, like your family, your friends that you've had for the longest time is just this building of marbles. It's putting marbles in a marble jar, like every act of kindness, every act of reliability or, you know, just being there, not huge sweeping gestures necessarily, just the little things where you show up in life for other people. You add to the marble jar, like if you've known somebody for a long period of time, then they have a lot of marbles in the jar. And if they do something that hurts you or that's really vindictive or out of character, then some marbles get taken out of the jar. So it's basically like, okay, the past is a great indicator of the future. You know, the people that have been there will be there. So I think with Marion and me, we've had a long relationship now. It's like over 10 years. And so there's a lot of marbles in the marble jar. We've been there through bad, bad times for both of us and great, great times
0: for both of us. And I'm very close with her friends. I'm jealous of that idea of a friendship and the length that you guys have and how you smiled as soon as I said, Mary, you had like a grin on oh, You your, should your see hands. my
1: reaction when you say Andrew Cuomo. I'm like, <gasps> <gasps> <laughs> I love him. He's your man. I know, you know. Yeah, he is. He's my man. I got to tell him though. I got to make sure he knows. <laughs>
0: If you could live anywhere in the world for a year, where would it be? Mm,
1: I'd probably go to Spain for a year. That seems like it would be right up my alley, especially right about now when you have to lie low, you know?
0: Yeah. What has been the most stressful experience of your life?
1: Oh. I don't know. I mean, I've been stressed before. Now I know how to manage that a little bit more. You know, that's where pot comes in a lot for me. I try not to get anxious about things or try to get like flustered by things moving around. But when I was younger, it happened all the time. So it probably would have been when I was doing Chelsea Lately and launching one of my books because that would always entail like a huge book tour and stand-up tour to go along with it. But I used to deal with stress in a way where I was just like exerting, exerting, exerting. So when I'm not taking in so much stress, you know, like you flip the switch on all of that when you understand how to manage your life. Like I'm never going to be in a situation where I'm going to ever want to work like that schedule again. I understand that now about myself. I did it too much. I burned myself out and I'm not open to that kind of schedule again. So I'm smarter and wiser for it. And I've modified my reaction to that level of stress as well. Chelsea,
0: what was a quality you really disliked in guests?
1: The quality that was difficult was when people were nervous. It's not like you dislike that because you can understand it, but it was hard to deal with in certain times, you know, to deal with people's nerves to get them to relax or, you know, have a drink, calm down. It should be a fun experience. I know you get nervous when you do interviews.
0: I think I have undiagnosed social anxiety to a massive degree. But I do wonder if you could flag, maybe even as you see a guest walking onto the stage, if you could clock at some point, like, okay, I know how I want to finesse this. Because even with a podcast, it does feel like taking a sailboat upwind. Right, exactly. Like, how do you navigate waters to, you know, provide interesting content?
1: That's a situation where I've gone to meet somebody in the guest room and I've been like, oh my God, they're going to be awesome. Like they're totally super confident in the dressing room. And then when they come out in front of the live audience, it's a shit show. And the opposite where people have been really nervous backstage and then they come out and they're great. So it's not scientific. You know, it kind of throws you off. And it shouldn't like a host should be able to navigate no matter who. It's like a doctor. Some patients are good patients. Some patients are bad patients.
0: So you have to accommodate for different people. I think it was a lot. Maybe it was the second last time I did. I can't remember. But Drake was in the other dressing room. He was, I like to think of him as second guest, but he probably (laughs) wasn't. But he like had his assistant come over or something. I was like, hey, Drake wants to say hi. And God, I was thrilled. So I go into his like dressing room and the whole thing is totally smoky. And it's exactly how you would want it to be. There's like 30 people in there. And I am just so fucking out of my element, but welcomed. I'm not sure I remember talking to you. I was still like buzzing high off of like being in Drake's. Yeah,
1: I had a lot of guests that brought a lot of weed. And I respected that because once we had Snoop Dogg come to the show, and literally we did not get the smell of cannabis out of the whole entire building for like, probably two to three months. It smelled and reeked because he was there for 17 hours and was smoking the entire time. And so, you know, guests that are going to bring something like that to the table, then
0: I'm open to that. But you have a reputation for being like by far the most generous host. Like you would outfit your dressing rooms. It was a very cush place to be. And it was very nice that you thought about people, assuming that you made those decisions with the massage chair and all the <laughs> snacks and like, yeah. all that shit.
1: I wanted people to be happy coming there. We were just happy to get guests in the beginning. Are you kidding me? I was like, we
0: have to bribe them and lure them with massage chairs. All right. What haven't you taken the time to learn about? Uh, The French Revolution. That's it? Mm -hmm. I like it.
1: I don't know a lot about a European wars. I know only mostly about the big ones and ours and some other ones. So I have a lot of learning to do. Why the French Revolution? Were you being flippant with that? Or do you really mean that? No, I really don't know that much about the French Revolution. So I should probably hit that subject matter soon. I'm reading a book that kind of brushes on it. So it reminded me that I
0: don't know anything about it. There was a bit of head chopping. Yeah. My relatives are French Huguenots. So they were the ones, like, oh, yeah. being, you know, the head chops. So for an eighth grade project, my uncle helped me build a miniature guillotine, but it's like four feet high. I got to show it to you. It's awesome. And I put like a little basket with a little doll's head. Anyway, I think I got like a B on the project, but you would think I would have gotten an A. <laughs> uh, um, Chelsea. What is it, Sweetie Pie? How do you feel like in general about hosting? I've been to some parties at your house that are big, but do you host like four, five, six person dinner parties? Or like, what is your relationship to hosting in general?
1: I liked people to use my house. So I definitely like to have a lot of activities at my house. I mean, not during quarantine. I haven't done that. But I mean, I have definitely outdoor cocktails now with some friends that come over. We sit in the backyard. Nobody goes near each other, you know, that kind of shit. But yeah, I like my house to be used and I like to host and I go through phases where I like to have people at my house and then I go through phases where I don't want people at my house. So,
0: you know, like anything, it's a little bit goes a long way. Okay, Chelsea, in one word, how would you like to be remembered? at my breasts
1: <laughs> um how would I like to be remembered just like as a badass somebody who didn't
0: take any shit Chelsea I don't think that's true <laughs> what? I feel like your book that I just listened to crying Well, that doesn't preclude me from taking any shit. I like to, I'm saying- No, for sure. Listen, there's no doubt that you're a fucking badass, but I wonder if- Oh, you don't think that's the most important thing? Like, you don't think that's enough of a legacy? You want me to have something more meaningful? Well, it felt a little dismissive, like, is this podcast over?
1: I I don't don't think a lot about how I want to be remembered. I mean, I don't have kids, so I don't know that I'm going to be remembered for that long. Well,
0: I do think that there is a weird obsession with legacy in this town that I don't care for. But I think that it haunts people in our industry. It seems to be very important to a lot of people. I guess it's like the final... It's like the
1: final rose.
0: Yeah. So, Chelsea...
1: I want to be remembered for like standing up and saying something and sticking my neck out to yell about social injustice and racial injustice and the work I did, you know, my documentary, Hello Privilege, It's Me, Chelsea, I did on Netflix. Yeah. Like that to me is important. That I have a lot of pride in. I mean, I you know, I don't take myself really that seriously, quite honestly. I just am happy to be here. I'm happy to be healthy and have endless possibilities, to kind of pursue creative things that inspire me, you know, that in itself is a privilege to be able to just do what I want in subjects that are interesting to me. So I take a lot of pride in that. And I take it seriously more so than I take myself. I would want you on my team.
0: Always. I think you're ferociously loyal and you strive for righteousness and what's good in the world and for other people. And you're a fighter.
1: Yes, I would fight for even a stranger if I thought they were being treated unfairly. Yes, you can count on me to throw my
0: body in front of yours, definitely. It's an amazing quality, though. Okay, do you have a favorite joke, Chelsea?
1: No, but I remember my friend Lisa Sunstead once said to me when I said to her that I was traveling this was like when laptops were like all the rage when they first came out and you could get like you know every single kind and people started traveling with them for the first time and i told her that i had trouble going through security because of my computer and she's like oh did you bring your desktop (laughs) and for some reason every time i think about i just start to giggle it's so stupid but i love it desktop i love it (laughs) going through the scanner at the airport with my desktop computer yeah okay i'm into that and then envisioning walking up to your seat and pulling out your desktop and then plugging Excuse it in. Me.
0: You don't mind if I, I, I just need a uh, room for my desktop. Okay. Oh, there's the, you're using the USB cord. Do you mind? If it, uh,
1: <laughs> Chelsea, so wait, what's next for you? I'm shooting my HBO Max special, hopefully in August. We're just figuring out where I'm going to shoot it and hopefully in a venue outside so we can have a socially distanced, decent sized crowd together. And I'm heading east to go spend some time in Martha's Vineyard for a few weeks with my family, my brothers and my sisters and all their kids. So it's basically this is the summer of me never getting away from my family. (laughs) I need a boyfriend. I need somebody to deflect and detract so that I have somewhere to go. You know what I mean? Yeah. Otherwise, my family's like, where
0: are we going now? I'm like, well, fuck, I don't know. We should get you like somebody who just doesn't speak a lick of English. Yeah, that
1: might be the best option, actually. You're
0: not wrong. I'm all right with some of that stuff on occasion. Hey, everyone, here's an excerpt from Chelsea's book. I hope you guys like it. Life Will Be the Death of Me, and You Too,
3: by Chelsea Handler. Read for you by Chelsea Handler. Where have I been all my life? I don't remember the actor, and I don't remember the movie, but I remember it was 5 o'clock in the afternoon, and I had just taken a couple hits off my vape pen. I needed to load my PIX account, which held pre-released movies that I was expected to screen before a star of one of the movies was a guest on my Netflix talk show. I was sitting on one of my overpriced chaise lounges, the kind that celebrities and Russians purchase for their bedrooms, when I found myself once again unable to convert the TV that descends from the ceiling from Apple TV to PIX. Rich people have descending smart televisions. The idea is that they descend silently and gracefully from the ceiling, but because I am nouveau rich, rich, mine sounds more like a helicopter landing. I'd like to blame my inability to change the mode of my television to pics on the fact that I was stoned, but that would be a lie. I'd be even less capable if I was sober. I called my assistant Brandon at his house to tell him to tell my other assistant Tanner, who was downstairs in my house, to come upstairs and help me with the television. I hung up the phone. I looked down at the table and saw the vape pen. How many more hits of marijuana would I need to get through this movie? I knew things had hit a new low or high, depending on how you looked at the situation. I picked up the iPad that controls the TV along with everything else in my house, from the window shades to the exterior lights in my backyard to my pulse, probably, and tried to pretend that I was troubleshooting so that Tanner would think I had at least tried to figure it out on my own, as if that had ever happened before. How did I become so useless, and how many assistants did I actually have? Answer, two. Brandon and Tanner. Brandon is gay and has an incredible attention to detail. Tanner is straight, and before he met me, thought that the Four Seasons was a weather pattern. Before I met Tanner, I thought Venmo was an online liquor store. Tanner was now upstairs, standing behind the chaise I was sitting on. I wondered if he could smell the weed I just smoked, and if so, what did he think of me? Did he realize that most television hosts don't even make the time to watch each movie and TV show to prepare for each of their upcoming guests? Did he understand that I was a consummate professional who went to great lengths to get ready for my show? Or did he think that I was just some rich, lucky white bitch who continued to fall upward? No, that wasn't quite right. I doubt he was thinking in terms of race, too. White people surely weren't thinking about skin color. I didn't want to watch another stupid fucking movie that I didn't care about, and I really didn't want to interview another action star bloviating about his motivation for playing a half-man, half-mermaid. I just didn't care, and I wasn't doing anyone any favors by pretending that I did. Did I ever care? The answer is yes. There was a time when all of this mattered to me. There was a time when being famous and having this kind of success and money and having a TV show was what drove me to want more and more and more. And now I found myself exhausted and ashamed by the meaninglessness of it all. I remember coming home a couple of weeks before the 2016 election on a windy fall night, which for Los Angeles is rare. Anytime there's weather in Los Angeles, even rain, it's exciting. The constant sunshine can start to grate on your nerves. I went up to my bedroom, opened up my sliding glass doors, grabbed my vape pen and turned on some Neil Young. I lay on my bed in the dark, watching the wind blow my bedroom drapes around, hearing the ruffling of the leaves and watching the lanterns that hang from my backyard trees swinging into each other, thinking, if there's an electrical fire, I hope the dogs will at least bark to wake me up. But overall, my thought was, this is fucking awesome. This is exactly what I'd hoped adulthood would be. No kids, no kids no husband, no responsibilities, just a TV show on Netflix and whatever else I felt like doing whenever I felt like doing it. Not trapped, not stuck, not dependent on a single person but myself, free to be you and me. I couldn't believe how lucky my life had turned out, how many of my dreams had come true, and also my good fortune in being alive during this time in history, the year we were going to elect our first female president. I suppose I could blame my state of mind on the election of Donald Trump, so I will. I have the Trump family and their horrifying personalities and veneers to thank for my midlife crisis. Along with more than half the population of the world, I couldn't grasp how in this day and age we elected a man who insulted Mexicans and women and Muslims and veterans and disabled people and everyone else he has insulted since. The contrast in decency between Barack Obama and Donald Trump was too much for me to bear, like electing Snooki to the Senate. Now people were seriously talking about Dwayne the Rock Johnson running for president? How on earth did we get here? Although, if I am being honest, at that point in time, or at any other time during the entire Trump presidency, I would have preferred an actual Rock. How could Americans have turned their back on decency? And why was I so misinformed? How did I not know that this outcome was even a possibility? What was I missing? I kept hearing the word elitists, that everyone in California and New York lived in a bubble, that the election of this lunatic was a result of all of us not knowing anything about the rest of the country. That didn't ring true for me. I had traveled all over the country doing stand-up for so many years. I had been to every major and some minor cities multiple times. I wasn't an elitist. My father was a used car dealer. I didn't have a trust fund or wealthy parents. We weren't allowed to answer the phone growing up because more often than not, it would be a bill collector. I had $400 when I drove across the country alone to move to Los Angeles, and then was broke for seven years, living paycheck to paycheck, while simultaneously getting fired from every waitressing job I ever had. I worked for everything I have and never even went to college. How could I be an elitist without ever having gone to college? And then, oh, wait a minute, now I remember. I grew up wanting to get as far away from the life my parents had given me as possible. I had created a life in which there was a zero-tolerance policy for any discomfort. I could handle physical discomfort like dental work or elective surgery to make my thighs smaller, but not any discomfort related to not having money. Sure, I was just scraping by on those cross-country trips in the beginning of my stand-up career, barely making enough money from small comedy clubs to cover my hotel room for the week. But after a few years, I was earning more money, and the clubs turned into theaters— and then arenas with private planes and chauffeured cars, sometimes for less than 24 hours, and then on to the next city. So here I was again, not taking into account the optics, or for that matter, the reality of my own entitlement. I had become exactly what I'd always wanted to be, an elitist. I did live in a bubble inside a bigger bubble, which was inside an even bigger bubble. Three bubbles, two assistants, two cleaning ladies, who are more like my nannies, a driver, a pool guy, a landscaper, a florist, a (sighs) houseman. What is a houseman, you ask? Someone who walks the dogs and polishes the outdoor furniture and cleans up the dog shit outside, basically an outdoor butler. When was the last time I cleaned up dog shit? Probably the last time I flew coach. I hated having these thoughts. I hated it because something clicked in the process of making these associative leaps. I realized that I'd made a career of overhydrating people with my honesty, yet I was being dishonest with myself, which left me operating in a deficit of truth. Now that I was aware of this situation, I would have to do something about it. I couldn't carry on the way I'd been carrying on, just coasting and cashing checks for essentially being a loudmouth. I took another hit of my vape. What I really wanted to do was watch the news, even though the news was giving me diarrhea. The whole administration was giving me diarrhea. My outrage was high. I had spent the year after the election being sucked into the vortex of news cycles that accompanied Donald Trump's ascendancy and my subsequent mental hernia. The news was like a high-speed merry-go-round that never slowed down long enough to figure out when it was safe to hop on or off. So like everything in my life thus far, I hopped on and stayed on. I had spent the better part of my day in a wormhole, googling pictures of young Robert Mueller because I was developing strong sexual feelings toward him as well as his investigation. In an interesting plot twist, it turns out Bob Mueller is even hotter in his early 70s than he was when he was in the Marines. I was more attracted to present-day Bob Mueller than I would have been had I been alive during Nam. The guy fucking kills me. Who is hotter than Bob Mueller? Daniel Day-Lewis playing Bob Mueller, maybe, but the jury is out until that movie is released and Daniel Day-Lewis gives up his shoe cobbling for a year. I mean, my God, just stop it with the cobbling. Just act. You're great at it. People adore you. No one's talking about your shoes. Maybe your wife, but I doubt it. Bob Mueller was the only hope I had that Donald Trump and that terrible vampire family he spawned would end up in prison. The investigation into Donald Trump and his conspiring with Russia and all the other crimes I'm sure he'll be indicted for made me realize what real men look like. They look like Bob Mueller, a 73-year-old with a six-pack, possibly an eight-pack, underneath that suit. You can see it through his shirt when he walks. He's ripped. Keeping your shit together is what that's called. A prosecutor, a Marine, and the director of the FBI? How on earth is any woman worth her salt meant to control herself around him and not sit directly on
0: his face? hey chelsea i can't thank you enough for all of this i hope i didn't sound disingenuous about my effusiveness with your book no not at all because i wasn't expecting for it to be so personally impactful and it's really amazing well thank thank you so
1: much i really appreciate it thank
0: you for doing this yeah bye bye